Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. A few years ago, nine-year-old Halal told their parents, I'm a boy girl. Can you tell me what it feels like to be a boy girl? That's a hard question. Like, I just feel like myself, that's it. I don't feel that different from anybody else. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We explore non-binary identity with Halal and their family. And attorney Anya Goldsby says she used to feel uncomfortable wearing her natural hair to work. I didn't want to push the envelope too much because I didn't want to be treated negatively and I didn't want to draw any extra attention to myself. Goldsby reflects on a new Connecticut law banning race-based hair discrimination. And it may have been the biggest sugar maple tree in the country. Well, it's a huge, huge tree. The girth is 21 feet, and this limb that comes out at right angles is as big as a, a regular tree. Now its neighbor says goodbye. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. We're going to start the show with a third grader and their family. I'm Hallel of Massachusetts, of the United States. Hallel is nine and the oldest of three siblings. Of the Milky Way galaxy. Of the universe. I like to draw, read, bake, play with Legos, and hang out with my sisters. Three years ago, Halel startled parents Shira and Ari with this announcement. And I am a boy girl. As Shira remembers that moment, Halel was playing with younger sister Yaara. It was at 7.30 in the morning. It was like as we were trying to get everybody out of the house to go to school. It couldn't have been more like, do you remember? Halel's parents are sitting in their toy-strewn living room holding their one-year-old baby girl. We're not using the family's last name because of Halel's age. Here's their story told through interviews with WBUR and their own recordings. Do you remember? Halel well, was crying. Yeah. Right, Halel was crying and I, you know, we, we said, what's wrong? And Halel said, well, Yar and I are playing parents mm-hmm. and Yara says that she's the mommy and that you're the daddy meaning Halal is the daddy mm-hmm. and that doesn't feel right because I'm a boy girl yeah and so it felt a little bit like um, getting up to the top of a roller coaster where you know like okay now it's going to begin and I don't know exactly what's going to happen next but, but what I do know for sure is that this is happening Halal had been gender nonconforming in some way for many years. And, and, you know, I think we had asked ourselves that was Halal transgender? Was Halal a girl? And that didn't quite feel right either. And, and we were always trying to come up with this calculation of like, Halal's acting girl-like, Halal's acting boy-like. Oh, but what a relief. Halal has acted boy-like for the past three weeks. So maybe this is going to stick. 
make the introduction. Okay. We're making a recording. Okay, hello. Can you tell me what it feels like to be a boy girl? That's a hard question. Like, I just feel like myself, and that's it. I don't feel that different from anybody else. What about you as a boy? So, first of all, there's nothing specifically for boys or girls. I just feel like a girl as well as a boy. Yeah, and I guess the question is, how do you describe that you knew one day that you felt like both a boy and a girl? It's hard, isn't it? I don't remember it that well. Can you? Do you think you remember a bit better? Well, I don't. I'll tell you about myself, which is that I always knew that I was just a girl. And it's weird because, you know, people ask somebody who's trans or who's non-binary, well, how do you know that you're trans? That would be like somebody asking me, well, Shira, how do you know that you're a girl? It's something that you know deep down inside. Something so I, that you choose and it's something that you know. So I understand the it's something that you know, but what do you mean it's something that you choose? You don't choose your gender at birth, but that doesn't stop you from changing your gender eventually or changing genders if you're a blue girl. Mm-hmm. So do you think um, your parents made a mistake about what your gender was? When you were born? Yeah, but that's normal. Like, I couldn't express and I didn't feel like a boy-girl yet. Okay. So I'm going to turn this off for the night, all right, puppy? Ari and I found out that Halal was going to be a quote-unquote boy because they saw a penis on the ultrasound. And so we just marched forward with this impression of what our life with a boy was going to be like. And and clearly it it was nowhere near what I envisioned. Not the least of which is also Hallel being on the autism spectrum, which has created another wave of of difference in our family. <laughs> we par- we parents trick ourselves into thinking that we have everything figured out, that we know what our story is going to look like because of these very basic indicators. And I just think it's such a fallacy. So? So, Halal, I want you to read the title of this article, and I'm curious what you think. They is the word of the year. Miriam Webster says, nothing, it's singular. Noting, it's singular rise. So let me read you this first paragraph. Miriam Webster announced the pronoun they as its word of the year, marking the rise of the use of the venerable plural pronoun to refer to a single person whose gender identity is non-binary. So what do you think about that? Wow. Why wow? Maybe, like, next year, they will be in the dictionary. I think it is in the dictionary already. Already? It took a while before you started really saying, I want to be called they. Yeah, about a month. 
And now we're we're all very very clear about what the pronoun is for you. Grandma and Papa. Well, Well, Grandma and Papa are working on it. I know it's frustrating. It's okay. So hello. I think it's so automatic. We say he or she or they or it almost every single sentence that we say something. So it's like we have a lot of practice using it in one way. Last night. I figured out how I would make it easier for my teachers and grandma and grandpa and stuff to understand. I could just tell them, refer to me as a group of people. Say they are, or I know them. Sometimes I have those monochrome days, but other days I have pastel, neon. I think I probably wear more pants, but I do love skirts. Dresses, oh, I love dresses. I wear those all the time. Um, There was, I think, an internal squeamishness I had about having Halal wear dresses to school. And I realized it's just because it was different and something I wasn't used to. Um, But they have taken such pride in who they are and in telling people. People usually assume that I'm a girl. If it's someone that I'm probably not going to see very often, I just don't correct them. But usually I correct them. Remember when we were in the airport in Hawaii and I said, Halil, you're wearing a dress. I don't think you should be going into the men's room even though there's no line. Do you remember that? Well, I really had to go. So I was just nervous that somebody was going to tell you that you had to leave. But I thought, like, all those questions become laws. So we know that you're protected in Massachusetts, but we have to do our research to understand what the protection is in other states. And that's that's the part that's a little scary, you know? We want you to be protected. Some days, I... Like, I made a schedule on Mondays, Thursdays, and Fridays. I go into the boys' or men's bathroom. And on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Saturday, I go into the women's bathroom. And on Sunday, I just go to whatever bathroom is to my right. <laughs> Really? (laughs) I don't think I knew the Sunday rule, but that's pretty amazing. I'm very worried about what Hallel's future will look like. My kid affirmed who they are, and I made the choice to either accept them or reject them, and I decided to accept them. But what's that going to look like when Hallel is 11, 12, 13, adolescence? I hope it's going to be wonderful. I don't know, though. I don't really want to think about that stuff. Because now is now, and I'll know when I live it. So is there anything else that you want to say as part of this conversation before I give you a kiss and you go to sleep? No, how about you? Um, I think what I want to say is I just love you exactly how you are. I loved you when you were born exactly how you were, and I love you now exactly how you are. You know you recorded that. I did record it, yeah. 
That story was produced by WBUR's Martha Biebinger, with original music composed by WBUR's Paul Vikas. Growing up, Anya Goldsby's mom was a hairdresser. So Anya would show up to school with all types of hairstyles. But at her majority white school, kids would do things like pull on her weave. When Anya grew up and became a lawyer, she didn't feel at ease bringing her full self to work. As a black woman, I think it's been difficult for me, um, and it's certainly been a process for me to feel comfortable in predominantly white spaces. The American Bar Association says only 5% of lawyers in the U.S. are black. And Anya, who coaches law students through her company Black Esquire, says there are even fewer black women in the profession. So when I show up to work and when I go to court, most of the people around do not look like me. And this is where hair comes in again. Anya felt like the expectation was that she would straighten her hair for work, like it was the quote-unquote professional thing to do. So I went through a a process, um, really, of just trying to figure out how I could best express myself because I was in the minority. I think I didn't want to do anything that would make me stand out more than I already did, right? So I was someone that did not wear my natural curly hair until maybe three years ago because I didn't feel comfortable doing it. Um, I've been in situations where people comment on my hair or, you know, say that it looks different, that kind of thing. And so it's likely because I didn't feel comfortable in those spaces was a big reason as to why I didn't wear my natural hair. Do you remember the first time you wore your natural hair in a professional setting? I do, actually. Um, So, yeah, this was in 2017. And I remember... I wore it to work that day, and I had a lot of comments from my coworkers. Some were uh, positive comments, but many of them were sort of, oh, wow, that's different. Ooh, did you cut your hair? I I got a lot of those comments, and, you know, I was a little nervous about doing it, but one of the things that I think made me feel more comfortable was seeing other black women wearing their natural hair. So while I was, was the only black woman attorney or black attorney, period, in the spaces that I've worked in, I have seen other black women wearing their hair in professional spaces, so that made me feel a bit more comfortable. Yeah. So now it's been like a couple years. So, so how do you feel now? Like, do you feel like your choice is accepted and respected? So I think it is at the same time, again, people are going to make judgments based on your appearance. It's just kind of the way our world operates. But I kind of got myself to the point where I just say to myself, you know what, I don't really care what you think. I'm going to be me 100% of the time. And this is something that I teach and preach to to my clients. So you know, I'm an attorney, but I'm also a law school coach. So I work with pre-law and law students. Um, My whole mission is really to increase diversity in the legal profession. As I mentioned, only five percent of lawyers in the U.S. are black. And so I want to see more of us in these spaces. But in order to do that, we have to be confident in these spaces. And hopefully that helps, you know, not further perpetuate the stereotypes that are in place. And so when we want to increase diversity in the profession, we need to also increase belonging in the profession so that people want to be there. And so me being comfortable wearing my natural hair and others being more comfortable seeing my natural hair, I think will help do that. 
One of the the many reasons we're talking about this is because Connecticut recently passed the Crown Act, which bans race-based hair discrimination in the workplace and in schools. And it, it particularly protects against discrimination of people wearing natural hair or protective hairstyles like locks, braids, and head wraps. And Connecticut's not the first state in the U.S. to pass this kind of law, but right now it's actually the only state in New England that has. And how did that feel for you when Connecticut made that move and passed the law? I was so excited. That literally made my entire day when I first heard about it. I remember when they passed it in the House of Representatives, and I have some friends that um, also serve in the legislature. So it was just so great to see the pictures and kind of just see this come alive because I know I'm not the only person that experiences this. And it was just so great to see that, especially that it passed unanimously, right? That's just like so powerful to me because it had the 100% support of those that voted. And that was... It really just made my day. And then, you know, fast forward, it passes in the Senate and then is now officially signed into law. Um, I'm really proud of my state. Can you feel that extra layer of protection? Um, Well, I I guess to some extent, right? For me, it was really um, kind of exciting to see that they kind of recognize that sometimes, especially when you're talking about proving discrimination claims, it's hard to pinpoint what the motivation is or to say that um, somebody is targeting this particular person because of their race. But when you literally tell somebody who has locks in their hair or braids in their hair that they are unprofessional and they need to go home, that to me is, it's just straight up discrimination. And so the fact that this law now recognizes that, I think it adds that extra layer of protection that wasn't previously there. You founded a company called Black Esquire, where you coach aspiring lawyers, as you mentioned. These are aspiring lawyers who are Black, Indigenous, or other people of color. And what was the inspiration behind founding this company? I mean, first and foremost, the reason I started this business was because I was so tired of seeing people that look like me struggle to achieve their lawyer dreams. The big issue is because the lawyer representation is low, the black lawyer representation is low specifically, you know, then further perpetuates a problem. When someone like me is growing up and they don't see lawyers that are black in their spaces, they may not even think that that's an attainable goal. If you don't see black lawyers or doctors, whatever profession it is, it's going to be more difficult for you to feel like that that's something that you can actually do. And so for me, starting this business not only will allow me to help really just increase diversity in the profession. But a lot of what I do as a coach is really just encourage my clients, motivate them, lift them up and let them know that they can do it. I did it. I struggled along the way, but I was able to do it successfully. And so I really want to create a roadmap and provide resources and information to those that maybe statistically wouldn't have access to it. So that's really the most important thing that I do with my business. Anya, you wrote in a recent article that, quote, We Black people in America, Black women especially, need allies. But more importantly, we need white allies, unquote. And how would you like to see white lawyers specifically become more supportive allies? I think a lot of people think being an ally is just showing support. And yes, that's part of it. But being an ally to the black community, the black legal community specifically means you have to kind of step up and you have to denounce all forms of racism. Again, it's not just about not being racist. You have to be anti-racist. So when you see things happening, speak up. There are so many things that are in place that make this uh, profession difficult for people like me to operate. And so, you know, reach out 
out to an attorney that you know that's in the space, a black attorney, take them out to lunch, make them feel welcome. That's certainly going to help. But beyond that, I think a lot of the issues come from Honestly, the leadership, everything sort of comes from the top down. And so with a lot of law firms that are in place, hiring practices have been in place for however many years. And a lot of people like to say, well, we do things this way because that's the way it always was. And honestly, that's just an excuse. But even outside of the law firm context or hiring, just general day-to-day things, ask yourself what you can do to make somebody else feel comfortable. Reach out to your Black colleagues find things that you can do and be creative. I think a lot of people just feel stuck on where to start. And trust me, there are plenty of things you can do to start. Anya Goldsby is a staff attorney at the Connecticut Public Utilities Regulatory Authority and the founder of Black Esquire. Attorney Goldsby, thank you so much for coming on next. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your time. There's been a lot of talk lately about electric vehicles. Automakers say they're going to make more of them. And President Joe Biden is pushing for more charging stations. The reality is, right now, not many people have electric vehicles. If you don't have one, but you want one, tell us about it at 860-275-7595. I'll say that again. 860-275-7595. You can also email us at next at ctpublic.org. That's next at ctpublic.org. And thanks. After the break, groups around New England are making the case for reparations for Black Americans. And Remember those pandemic stories about people escaping big cities for places like New Hampshire and Vermont? Now we check in with some of those newcomers to see if they'll stay. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, Supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. People have been making the case for reparations for Black Americans for decades. Some groups in New England are trying to create momentum by taking more targeted approaches. New England Public Media's Karen Brown takes a look at those efforts. And a warning to listeners, this report begins with some graphic descriptions. Lent Shaw was a successful Black farmer in Colbert, Georgia in 1936, when he was accused of assaulting a white woman and put in jail. A lynch mob later dragged him out of jail, tied him to a tree, and killed him. In order for a lynching like this to occur, and in order for there to be no steps toward justice, uh, the entire community had to play a part in this. Evan Lewis is Lentshaw's great-grandson. He'd known about the lynching his whole life. A few years ago, he decided to visit the town where the killing took place. In recent years, Lewis, who lives in Watertown, Massachusetts, has met other descendants of lynching victims. Together, they decided to seek reparations. And and to try to put families back on the footing that they might have been on if not for these atrocities that forced them off of land, that 
oftentimes remove sort of primary breadwinners from the home. Historically, many people have argued that reparations in the form of direct cash payments should go to the millions of descendants of enslaved people who continue to suffer from inequality and racism in America. So much of what we have accumulated as a country is directly tied to the plunder of Black bodies and to Black and, and, and to Black communities, such that if we really want to engage in the effort of tying a dollar amount to what has been stripped from Black people, that number will be massive. And Lewis says that's why many people argue against reparations. They say it just doesn't seem practical. So he wants to start with what he considers a more tangible goal, the economic consequences of specific acts of violence. And we can identify the land that my great-grandfather owned. We can also quantify the impact when the entire family, uh, my great-grandfather's wife and his 11 children, are forced to relocate from Georgia, abandon their land, set down roots in a place like Chicago, and go from being landowners to living in public housing. Lewis is leading a group of about two dozen descendants of lynching victims, working with the Center for Civil Rights and Restorative Justice at Northeastern University. Lewis says they're following other smaller-scale actions, like at Georgetown University, which created a fund to give free tuition and other benefits to descendants of enslaved people who the school had once sold. There is a really long history of organizing for reparations, and people have taken you know, different approaches. Dania Francis is an economist at UMass Boston who specializes in reparations. Francis supports a broad federal program of reparations, but says there's no reason not to try a more targeted approach, like focusing on lynching victims. It helps paint a picture. Who has been harmed and what does it look like? And so in that way, I think that that it's important and it's building blocks of of a larger movement. So who would like to put the motion forward. Another way to start small is by geography. To adopt the resolution affirming the town of Amherst's commitment to end structural racism and achieve. In December, the Amherst, Massachusetts Town Council passed a resolution to start on a path of remedy as a first step to reparations. Councilor Dorothy Pam spoke before the vote. Let's not think about the big whole picture. Let's look about what's in our own backyard and look at our town The Amherst effort, modeled on a similar one in Illinois, was launched by two white residents of the town. One of them, Matthew Andrews, says they were inspired by the George Floyd protests last summer. When we looked at all the Black Lives Matter signs on people's lawns and at the library and around town, and we thought, well, maybe, maybe there's enough goodwill and enough willingness to actually do something. Although Amherst is often considered a tolerant, liberal New England town, Andrews says its racial history is much darker. They found records of slavery, of banishing freed slaves, exclusion from hotels, restaurants, and higher education, and at least one property deed from 1950 that forbids selling to black people. Even today, census numbers show the median salary of black residents in Amherst is significantly lower than white residents. Racism is a system of advantages developed and benefiting white people. And that exists everywhere, even in Amherst. Kathleen Anderson is among a group of black stakeholders in Amherst, charged with deciding what reparations would look like there and who would be eligible. Though she says across the country, mostly white officials have final say. It becomes important for areas that are predominantly white, like Amherst, 
to advocate for reparations. Um, the expectation is that white people will wake up to the ways that they have benefited from the discrimination against black people and will uh, demand that justice be served. Yes. The resolution passes unanimously 13 in favor. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Karen Brown. Every year, high school students sweat over the SATs or ACTs, those all-important standardized tests that many colleges and universities in the U.S. require in the application process. But, like most things, it's different this pandemic year. A lot of schools have waived that requirement. And that decision has reignited a national debate about whether or not standardized testing is a fair metric to judge applicants. Bates College in Maine took a big stance in this debate in the 1980s. That's when it decided to not require their applicants to submit standardized test scores. Lee Weisenberger leads the admissions office at Bates College. Lee, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me. Now, test optional in the case of Bates means that when students apply, they have the choice of whether or not to submit standardized test scores. And and why did the college make this change back in the early 80s? So Bates has forever been deeply committed to access, equity, and inclusion. It's deeply rooted in our DNA, integral to our mission, and again, part of our founding. So while I wasn't in the Office of Admission at that time, but have interacted with colleagues from that era over the years, they articulated and have shared time and time again that it was a key moment in education, in the nation, um, but particularly college admission, when folks were beginning to be critical in a constructive way, looking into the value of standardized testing. Can you talk a little bit more about what exactly is the problem with standardized tests? Like, who do they advantage or disadvantage? There has been research done making the case saying that those who typically come from majority populations, meaning white in terms of race, those students who come from affluent backgrounds uh, tend to perform better on these tests. When you think about resources to prepare for the tests, the schools that many of those students likely attend, um, all of that leads to one's ability to do quote unquote well on the tests versus on the other side, um, students who might come from under-resourced high schools, underserved high schools might not have the same socioeconomic status, family wealth to prepare for those tests typically, historically, don't do as well on standardized tests. So the hope would be, of course, that after Bates went test optional in the 80s, that the pool of applicants would diversify, meaning more low-income students would be accepted, more students of color would be accepted. Did that happen? Absolutely, in the sense that the goal was to make sure we were removing a barrier to one successful application to the college. So when we did remove standardized testing as a requirement by making it optional, we did in fact see greater diversity in our applicant pool. So meaning more students who identify as BIPOC, more students coming from lower income brackets, uh, more students who are first generation in their family to attend college. So yes, absolutely saw that. Did that translate to the student body that was actually accepted? Sure. I don't have the data in front of me from 
you know, early 1984 to 1990, but certainly when you look at the population over the decades, yes, there definitely was an increase in the number of students who were admitted that come from, again, historically marginalized backgrounds. And then ultimately, the population certainly has diversified in our enrolling class. Now, Bates isn't saying you don't have to take the test at all. What you're saying is we don't need it for the application process. But then you actually do require it after the students decide to enroll at the, at the school. Is that right? So we actually don't even require it in terms of saying to students, we hope you take this test or we mandate you take this test. We know, in fact, that there are a number of students every year in our applicant pool who, for philosophical reasons or even access reasons, never take the standardized uh, tests. And again, this goes for SAT and ACT. However, if they did take the test and, yes, they were admitted and choose to enroll over the course of the summer, we do, in fact, ask for their standardized test scores strictly for internal research purposes where, thankfully, my predecessors way back when saw the need to keep internal data to prove the efficacy of being test optional. So by having those test scores in-house for students who chose not to submit at point of admission application but then share after enrollment, we've been able to show over time that there's a nominal, almost negligible difference in one's Bates GPA. So our submitters at point of application versus our non-submitters at point of application, the difference in their Bates GPA is about 0.15. I mean, some educational researchers do argue that, at least for some institutions, test scores are a good predictor of how well students will do, and for that reason are useful. What's your response to that? Each institution, they're entitled to their prerogative. And perhaps if it's a specialized academic program, they might see real strength in correlation between one's performance on standardized test scores and then ultimately performance or potential for strong performance in said academic program. But for Bates as a liberal arts institution and the way we approach our work, um, really three and a half years on a transcript is going to tell us a whole heck of a lot more than three and a half hours on a Saturday. So we we lead with that transcript. We lead with the other elements that support the transcript and, and feel confident in our process. Lee Weisenberger leads the admissions office at Bates College in Maine. Thank you so much for joining us on Next. My pleasure. Thank you, Morgan. A year ago, a bunch of people picked up and left big cities to try to escape COVID. They hurried to more rural vacation towns in states like New Hampshire. For some, it was just a short escape. They're back home now. But others have settled into a rural lifestyle. So, will they stay permanently? New Hampshire Public Radio's Sarah Gibson looks into it. For five-year-old Joanna Sheloff, winter in the pandemic has been pretty good. I just, I get to ski a lot. And I do different kinds of skiing. Like, tell me all the kinds. Like, cross country, skate skiing a tiny bit on my skis, um, and downhill skiing. Normally, Joanna and her family live in Philadelphia, but this year they're hunkering down in their second home, a 230-year-old farmhouse by Squam Lake. 
their main reason for being here. Joanna and her sister are going to the tiny public school down the road. It's been in person five days a week since September, as opposed to the Philadelphia School District, which has been largely virtual. Joanna's dad, Eric Shelov, a doctor, saw a lot of his job become virtual too. So he can work anywhere, but there are some challenges. The internet was painfully slow and took months to troubleshoot. We had plan A, B, C... And I think we eventually got to plan H and actually got better internet access. They also got involved. Shalov gave medical advice to the Sandwich School on COVID safety. The family wants to return to Philadelphia, but might stick around another year if the city schools don't fully reopen. And they're not alone in this arrangement. Other schools in the Lakes region have seen enrollments increase with new families during the pandemic. Kenneth Johnson is a demographer at the University of New Hampshire. He says this influx could give rural towns a boost. The volunteer fire department, the PTA, all the groups affiliated with churches or civic organizations, they all need that energy and enthusiasm of new people. But Johnson says it's too early to tell if the new people will stick around. Take 25-year-old Tristan McLean. He grew up in New Hampshire, but he was in New Jersey working as a bartender when the pandemic hit. I, I just bugged out, honestly. I packed everything I had within two to three hours and drove right for over for the night. I think I got back in New Hampshire at eight or nine in the morning. McLean eventually found work at a grocery store in Plymouth, but it hasn't been easy. He says being biracial and black in this largely white town, he hears racist comments every day. A big solace, he says, has been nature. You know, whether it's a quiet hike or going with a small little group, acting like young 20-year-olds and blasting music and screaming at the top of the mountain. <laughs> McLean is renting an apartment with a childhood friend, but a lot of pandemic arrivals are buying homes, and the real estate market is hot. Massachusetts resident Crystal Gagnon is thinking of upgrading from a small cabin on a campground in Meredith where she, her wife, and three kids are living. She says her friends back home... They, some of them think we're nuts. <laughs> but I do believe that maybe that was the impression at the beginning. But now that we're here and they see, like, obviously I have Facebook and our kids talk to their friends still, I think they're actually kind of envious. There's some speculation that if pandemic migrants relocate to rural areas, those places will become more liberal. But Gagnon says she likes New Hampshire because even during the public health crisis, compared to Massachusetts, some state restrictions and attitudes about COVID-19 here have been more relaxed. You're at the restaurant, it feels like it was before. I just feel in Massachusetts, it feels like people are scared and it's just not enjoyable. Gagnon says she's planning to buy a permanent home here, but is waiting until the pandemic housing frenzy cools down. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sarah Gibson. Coming up, what does life look like when you're a piano tuner, a global pandemic hits, and people stop prioritizing playing in tune or playing at all? And it may have been the largest sugar maple tree in the country. What happened to the old lady, as her human neighbor calls her? It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy.
Okay, we're back. I'd never really thought about what life is like for a piano tuner, let alone a piano tuner in a global pandemic. In this next story, we find out. And what we find is that this piano tuner's life is something of a barometer for the battered live music industry in Boston. WBUR's Andrea Shea has the story. Fred Mudge has been tuning pianos full-time for about three decades. Three things throw a piano out of tune, playing it, temperature, and humidity. Mudge has prepared instruments for concerts with some big-name musicians. Paul Simon, Aretha Franklin, Peter Gabriel, James Taylor and Carole King, Red Hot Chili Peppers, lots of piano tunings. Also for piano legends like Billy Joel, Stevie Wonder, and Dave Brubeck. Over the years, Mudge carted his toolkit to TD Garden, Fenway Park, and the Berkeley Performance Center. From the early 90s, he tuned for the late Chick Corea, who said this about Mudge during a show at Sculler's Jazz Club. Actually, you know, the piano technician is like 80% of the, of the piano. You can have a great piano and it not prepared well, and it's, it's a dog. The guitarist gets to tune in between songs. So does the violin and the cello. They're tuning in between pieces of music that they play. They have four strings or six strings. I have 230. But Mudge hasn't tuned at a music venue in more than a year. On this day, he's meticulously tweaking strings inside a black Yamaha Grand with his tuning hammer at Wellspring Sound Studio in Acton. Boston jazz pianist Yoko Miwa is on her way over for a video performance. Mudge hasn't been here in months. December 7th. But before the pandemic, it was a weekly stop on a typical workday that often began at 6 a.m. in a high school. And then go to a private client or two, hit a church or a hotel. And then I'd usually end my day at one of the jazz clubs or both the jazz clubs and do anywhere between five and seven pianos a day six, seven days a week. Mudge also tuned pianos on cruise ships, often about three dozen a month. Then there were the colleges and assisted living homes. Anywhere and everywhere that they've got uh, a piano with strings that needs to be tuned, I've uh, made it a policy not to say no. Whether it's a junk box or a nine-foot concert grand, it all pays the bills. At least it did before 2020. The first two months of the pandemic, when everything shut down, I had no tuning work, zero, none. I laid everybody off, put my whole staff on unemployment. At the time, I was even thinking I'd get a part-time job at a supermarket or something just to be able to support my family. Mudge says he lost about $40,000 over the past year because of the grounded cruise ships and at least 23000 from the long-dormant jazz clubs. His company has received PPP loans, and he was able to bring back four of his eight employees. Now the bulk of Mudge's business is coming from private clients, many piano teachers working remotely from home, combined with a new revenue stream, selling pianos he's restoring at his shop. And due to COVID, I am sanitizing the keys. Mudge worries about the future of the live music industry, with arenas, clubs, and restaurants being silenced for so long. Many have shut down for good. While he's been able to survive, his heart goes out to colleagues whose careers have been upended. The engineers, the backline technicians, the roadies as they're called, The lighting technicians, the stage managers, the production managers, they're completely out of work. 
Then there's the musicians, like pianist Yoko Miwa, who just arrived for her video session. She had a weekly residency at the now permanently closed Les Zigomats in Boston. Beautiful French restaurant. We played there for like 15 years. Financially, we are hurt. Especially we were performing every weekend, and we had some big shows. Miwa is grateful for her teaching job at Berklee College of Music, and now to be able to play the Yamaha prepared by Mudge. During the pandemic, she attempted to tune her own piano at home. Of course, it's not easy. It was really bad. (laughs) We usually laugh when someone says they tried to tune their own piano. Sounds like a piano again. The best part of my job is when I finish tuning for a pianist like Yoko or someone and they sit down and try it out and they are inspired. I love it. I love it. Beautiful. The piano tuner looks forward to the music scene coming back to life now that venues can reopen at reduced capacity. Things are looking up, but he says there's still plenty of uncertainty. Yesterday I was driving by the Boston Garden and there was an advertisement for Justin Bieber in July, which definitely gives us hope. But you can't do a big production of the Rolling Stones or something with a whole bunch of 18-wheelers and crew and, and that sort of thing to... 25% of an audience. One thing Mudge does know for sure is that there are a lot of -of out-of-tune pianos out there. There are, and I'm looking forward to the time when we can come back and go full force at this. Um, I'm a little worried that if everybody calls it once, we could be inundated. But the tuner says that would be the right problem to have. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Andrea Shea. In Kensington, New Hampshire, there's this massive maple tree, really big. Some people say it's the biggest maple tree in the country, or I should say, was the biggest maple tree. In early April, the old lady, as they call her, was cut down by a team of arborists. New Hampshire Public Radio's Todd Bookman has this remembrance of the landmark and the woman who knows it best. Janet Buxton seems stressed. (laughs) You would be too. It's hard letting go of things you love. Harder still when reporters won't stop calling you. A circus. I'm part of it. No, it's okay. It's okay. I love my tree. I'm heartbroken. It takes my mind off it. Buxton has lived in this Kensington house with this tree since she moved in in 1954. She and her 11 siblings grew up in its shade. Bobby, Dickie, Donnie, Kenny, Billy, Dolly, Janice, Sonny, Nancy, Skippy, Jonathan, and Betsy. It's just Janet who lives in the old farmhouse now, though. There are actually two sugar maples flanking the house, just feet from the front windows. This section of the house was built in 1780. That's around when Buxton thinks the trees were planted. One's big, one is even bigger. Well, it's a huge, huge tree. It's 21 feet. The girth is 21 feet. And this limb that comes out at right angles is as big as a, a regular tree. But a few weeks ago, a storm swept through. But when we had the terrible windstorm... You could hear it creaking open. Oh, my God, my tree. 
There's now a crack running clean through the trunk, like someone took a cleaver to it. So what's the plan for the wood once it comes down? Well, everybody in the family wants a piece. I'm on a countertop made out of uh, some of it, and a man was just on the phone, and he wants to make some bowls, and uh, people are lining up to take my tree. (laughs) Nobody paid for the arborist, but now everybody wants a piece of my tree. Janet Buxton hired Micam Davis, a local arborist, a few years back. He installed anchors. He's fed it special compost. Together, they tried their best, but after the windstorm, it's just become too dangerous. And she's going to go. I call her the old lady. On Monday, reporters, neighbors, passers-by, they took in one last look from the roadway. And then... What took 200-plus years to grow, it comes down quickly, thoughtfully, in sections. The arborist himself was taking photos from the bucket as he went. Janet Buxton poked her head out every now and then. Like the old lady, her time here is also done. This fall, the house, after 67 years, is going on the market. It's the end of, just the end of our time with this house. The whole house and the tree, we all go together. Yeah. <laughs> For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. And that's a wrap on our show this week. Listen wherever you get your podcasts by searching Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer, and Lily Tyson. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. The music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Public's Radio. 